Welcome to episode number 41 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs, interesting people who tell their stories and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver. I'm your host for the show today, and I'm so glad you've stopped by to listen to today's podcast. If you enjoy what you hear on the show, please leave a review and a rating. This lets me know what you like and how I can improve the show. I also encourage you to send this episode to a friend or colleague who may be interested to hear the message from today's program. On the show today, I have Karen Springs. Karen lived in Kyiv, Ukraine for 14 years, advocating for orphaned and at-risk children and working with hundreds of adoptive families. Karen has managed humanitarian and child advocacy projects throughout Europe, Central Asia, and the Middle East with Orphan's Promise. In 2017, Karen set out on a road trip across the U.S. to explore what happens after adoptive families bring their children home and real life begins. Using her own experiences and those of the 63 adoptive families she interviewed, Karen wrote her first book, Adoption Through the Rearview Mirror where she explores the brokenness and beauty found in adoption. With a background in performing arts, production, and writing, she is passionate about using those gifts to advance God's kingdom and see nations collaborate in solving their orphan and vulnerable children crisis. Today, she serves as the communications director at World Without Orphans. And we're so thrilled that Karen has joined us today, right here on the podcast. Well, Karen Springs, welcome to the My Story Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Thanks, Conrad. I'm excited to talk to you. We connected first, man, how many years ago was it? It was a while back. Somehow, I was trying to think if the first time was it in Ukraine, yeah, right? I think that's where we first met, yeah. right, physically. Yeah, we, yeah. Uh, we met there, but we had connected earlier through a film project I'm working on and some mutual connections. And, yeah. and so uh, tell me a little bit about so who are you and what do you do? Who am I and what do I do? The question everybody wants to ask during a pandemic, right? <laughs> um, who am I? Well, I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest um, and grew up in a Christian family here. And then I went to school and studied theater and communication at Seattle Pacific University. And when I was graduating, I didn't really know what I was gonna do. And I had some relatives working in overseas ministry in the country of Ukraine. And that turned into an open door um, that essentially changed the direction of my life. So I'm a, an advocate for children and families. Um, I'm also like you, a storyteller. Um, I've always been passionate about telling people's story. Um, and how that especially relates to, to vulnerable children. And yeah, I, and I'm a follower of Jesus and uh, a girl who loves her family and, and loves people. So going back to, so out of college, you had this opportunity to go to Ukraine. Was Ukraine ever in your, you know, your thought patterns early on? No, I had known as a child growing up. So um, my my relatives moved to Ukraine in 1991. So right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I was in elementary school at the time when that happened. And 
you know, probably did not know much about the Soviet Union, but would hear like peripheral things through family. So I knew I had this family over there that was working. And so um, remember when Oksana Bayul won the gold medal in figure skating and thinking, oh, Ukraine, I have family in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So there were little connections to Ukraine over the years. Um, and then when I was uh, a senior in college, I went on my first overseas ministry trip to Russia. And so that was my first exposure to the former Soviet Union. Um, but prior to that, knew very little about the people, the language, the culture, and had to look up where Ukraine was on a map. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. A couple of uh, in last season of the My Story podcast, I had a Ukrainian on that I met, and she had always wanted to come to America. You know, as a little girl, and had heard about America and this amazing place, and uh, now she has the opportunity to do that. And so now it's interesting meeting someone, talking to someone who is kind of going the other way. Yes. Saying, hey, I'm interested in going to Ukraine and seeing what that's all about. So what? So how did you get there first, and 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 why did you go, and what did you do? So uh, as I, I was graduating from university and didn't really know what was next, um, as I mentioned, I knew I had these relatives. And so it started with just a conversation. I'd had another cousin who'd gone over and done like an internship post-graduation. And I just thought like, well, I've always wanted to travel the world. I've always wanted to serve um, in some capacity. And so I asked my relatives if there would be an opportunity uh, for that to happen. And so it, it just began with an open door invitation, but really not even knowing what I would be doing. So uh, my relatives at the time, well, uh, were, were leading the work of the Christian Broadcasting Network in Kiev, Ukraine, which was doing work throughout the whole former Soviet Union. And um, I knew very little about what I could do to help, but I came on over and very quickly learned that I was going to need to learn more of the language if I was going to help. Um, but in the very first, goodness, what was it, two months, I, I visited an orphanage where our organization was doing some a humanitarian aid distribution. And when I visited that orphanage, I met a group of, of young girls about 11, 12, and just spent a couple days spending time with them and communicating in our very limited, their limited English, my limited Russian. And um, my heart just broke over their situation. I was just beginning, I was being inundated with all of the the social problems of Ukraine and finding out what happens, uh, what could happen to kids that age out of orphanages, how uh, at that time adoption in Ukraine wasn't very common. And so I was meeting all these little girls and just thinking like, my goodness, how different their 11 year old life is than my 11 year old life was where I had a family. And so God just put these little girls on my heart and I just thought, what can I do to advocate? What can I do to tell their story? And so I went back and I wrote um, an article just about these children and the needs of older orphans and uh, CBN, who I was volunteering with at the time, published it on their website. And before I knew it, I was getting emails from families that were interested in adoption. And I was 23 years old and suddenly becoming a, taking a crash course uh, that I was giving myself in international adoption. And so all these things were happening. And also in um, those first, so I was in Ukraine for eight months on this first trip over. And so I had gathered with some other people in the office um, to kind of brainstorm what else can we do locally. And so we, we formed together a project and we gathered different people that were working with orphans and vulnerable children in Ukraine. And we 
started saying, what are the needs? So like, how can we advocate for kids to be in families? And then the second part was, how can we help kids that are aging out of institutions? So our, our approach kind of became two-pronged. We started advocating for adoption within the Ukrainian church. And then the other part was developing a curriculum for kids that were aging out of the orphanage and how we could train up church or other volunteers to come into the orphanages and work with the kids, teach them, build relationships so that when they exited, they would have relationships with people on the outside and also a set of skills that would help them uh, thrive outside the orphanage. So that was all happening in these wow. first eight months. And I remember as the, the date on my ticket was coming closer, it was like, why am I, why am I going back to the U.S.? Like there's so much happening here. And I remember praying before I had left for Ukraine of just saying, God, if this is supposed to be more than about eight months, like I'm open. And I always say that was a very dangerous prayer <laughs> because um, when you know it came time to leave, I just realized that so much of my heart was invested. And so long story short, I, I did go back to the US. I ended up in, uh, enrolling in an intensive Russian program so that I could beef up my language skills. And within seven months of departing Ukraine, I was back in Ukraine and, and ready to take on the next uh, what season, forever how long that right. would be. So what was it like when you first got there? You kind of, you know, hearing stories, knowing kind of what to anticipate, what to expect, and what did you actually experience? What was that like? Adjusting to that, just, just you know, adjusting to the culture or cult, adjusting to life in Ukraine? What was that like to going from this, you know, Northwest US outside of the big city, Seattle, you know, you know, life that you had to going into the big city of, of Kiev? Yeah, in some ways, it, it feels hard to remember. Well, I, I do tell people that I had a bit of a soft landing just because I was so I had my relatives who are Americans mm -hmm. that had been living they had already been there for 14 years at the time that I arrived. And so I was living with an American family. So I always say I had a little bit of a soft landing and that they were my, you know, place to be as I explored the culture. And, mm -hmm. um, but it was, I mean, it was just hearing at that point, I didn't speak Russian. So it was like everywhere I would go, it was this, like, am I going to be able to get across what I need? And mm -hmm. Ukraine has changed so much in, mm -hmm. in the, 14 years that I was there and now even more people speak English but back then it was even hard to find people on the the street that you know could communicate and um and that, that I mean I just remember there wasn't you know there wasn't a restaurant culture or a coffee culture or any of that it just so much was so different from my life at home um and yet I was so intrigued by the people and right away I could just see a deep faith in so many of the people that I was meeting and um I just loved learning so much about about the people and about the culture and, and a different way of life. So I, I kind of just jumped right in and, and was ready, ready to learn. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, describe Kiev for us, for, for those that have, have never been there, describe that city in a way. How do I describe? <laughs> You've been there. Um, <laughs> so it's a big, it's a big city. It's right, about, right. I think officially the population officially was 3 million, but after the conflict started with, um, and a lot of people from Eastern Ukraine were displaced, 
Uh, people say that the population could be five to six million just because mm -hmm. of internally displaced people that moved. So it's a bustling city with a bustling, you know, public transportation system. Mm -hmm. And I think one a lot of, of high rises, a lot of high rises, a lot of construction right. going on. Um, people often um, ask, you know, if I speak Russian or Ukrainian, and that's always you know, an interesting topic to bring up because the country itself, um, you know, because of the Soviet Union, everyone was forced to speak Russian. And after that fell apart, there was a revival of the Ukrainian language. But I would say that both are there. Both languages are, are very much spoken. Mm -hmm. And it really just depends which part of the country you are in. Mm -hmm. In um, Kiev, the capital where I was, the, the educational language was Ukrainian. But I would still say the, the street language was Russian and our office was primarily Russian speaking. So I opted to learn that just knowing that the language was broader in, in the region. But um, I, in the time that I was there, there was a shift more towards speaking Ukrainian and you were seeing that in younger people. And especially with just the, the recent conflict that the country has been through, the, a rise of more wanting to return to national roots and a revival of, of the Ukrainian language. So I, yeah, I was going to say in the last, Four years since I've been going to Ukraine, it's, you really see that. You see more and more people, you know, you know, really asking. You know, like we were at a big, I was invited to the national prayer breakfast in Ukraine a couple of years ago. And I had hired a translator to be with me just so that I have, you know, to make sure I can communicate with people. And, and she's an amazing translator. And so they had asked her to step in one of the meetings at, at the prayer breakfast to translate. And her first language is Russian. And so she started translating into Russian. It was, an, it was an American diplomat who was speaking. So she was translating him into Russian. And pretty soon she was pulled off the stage and she came back, sat down. She was like, oh, they didn't tell me they wanted me to translate into Ukrainian. And they were like getting salty about it. you know. <laughs> and so there is still that, you know, yeah. for some of those hardline Ukrainians is, you know, speaking. And these are christian people who didn't you do not speak russian in our room you know it was just yeah i sometimes had a little more grace being a foreigner and i would and it's funny too because i would sit through so many meetings where like half the people would be speaking russian and half would be speaking ukrainian and my my understanding of ukrainian is probably like at 30 to 40 percent i mean so it's not real high and um, so i would always joke that they would be switching back and forth without even like <sighs> being cognizant of the fact that they were doing it. And I'd be like, uh, uh, could you say it in Russian so I could understand? So it was always a joke that they had to switch languages for me, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in Russian is a, is a very difficult language to learn. At least when I was trying to learn some of it, you know, I know a few words, I know, put it yet, you know, <laughs> some words yeah. like that, but it, it's a, it's a tough language. So what is the situation in Ukraine where you, you said you met some girls who were orphaned. What is that situation and why? Why are there so many kids on the streets in Ukraine? Well, there, there's less kids on the streets today, that's for sure. In the, early, in the early 90s, there was definitely an issue with street children. Um, and that was just, I think, with the, when the Soviet Union ended. And um, there, the primary reason for most kids that were on the streets and in institution was, was social reasons. So in homes with um, alcoholism, drug addiction, um, and those sorts of things. And so that is really what created to the breakdown of the family. So uh, the majority of kids living in institutions in Ukraine are not 
true orphans and that they do have living parents. So in the early 90s, there were a lot of children on the street and there was a lot of ministries and governmental work that that was put into place to really curb that problem. And I, so I would say today there is not a huge street problem, a street child population. And even in the institutions, um, that's been an interesting ebb and flow. Uh, they've tried, there is a movement in the country to deinstitutionalize or to, to shut down, to make smaller group homes, to promote foster care and adoption. But it is sometimes a little confusing to get the real picture because um, as of last pre-COVID, I know things have changed in light of they did send some kids home during um, when the outbreak happened. But there were about, pre-COVID, there were about 100,000 kids living in institutions in Ukraine. And of that, I think it was only 8,000 that were available for adoption. So meaning like legally free children. Um, I need to verify that number. I have it in this book here somewhere, but, um, it was somewhere around that. And, uh, so that said, there has been work to say, how do we help get kids back to family if they're able to care for them? And if not, how do we, if they're not, if they can't go home, how do we find a legal solution through foster care or adoption? So there is a push, um, by the government, um, to move in that direction. And, um, and while I was there in my early years, we really, were able to see a birth of an, an adoption and foster care movement, which was phenomenal. Um, in the Christian churches, families began to really open their eyes to the needs of children, and, and a, a movement began, and the organization I was working with was able to be a part of that. Um, in my own storytelling, we were able to capture a few short films that were showing uh, the Ukrainian uh, church rising up and to be a solution. So that was a really beautiful movement that I got to see while I was there, and, and that really continues till, till today. Hmm. So how has, over the years that you were there, you were there for 14 years, how did you change during that time? Oh, how did I change? Um, I don't think you can live outside of your country uh, of origin and not change. And I think sometimes um, you don't always, you don't see it in the midst of it, but I think every time you come back to your, your home country, maybe those changes are are emphasized. And um, I think the biggest thing is just the way my faith was refined and grown. I think when you live in one culture, um, and one church, you know, whether that's domination or a group of people, you can tend to see God one way through your cultural lens. And I think that as I interacted, um, with Christians from other, you know, from another background and not just in Ukraine, because my work took me to surrounding countries as well. So I would say the influence is not just Ukraine, but it just expands your view of, of how God is at work and how God um, speaks to people. And, um, and also I think just my, my way of seeing how things work. I think sometimes you grow up like, this is the way things are done. This is the way medicine is done. This is the way communication is done. And I would say, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs personality type, but I yep. was um, a very strong J <laughs> going into Ukraine. Um, and I, you know, very, very organized, very like to plan. And I would say when I've taken that test uh, since living in Ukraine, that J has shifted a lot more towards a P. <laughs> mm. And I would say my ability to be flexible. I think when you live in a country um, 
in Eastern Europe or and probably other places in the world too, but your ability to have to be flexible and for the plan to change and for the plan to change again and mm -hmm. for the plan to change halfway through and for things to cancel. I mean, I just like learned to throw my plan away because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it was always changing. Um, and that is yeah. And a few years ago, you know, I led a team over to, to Dnipro, Ukraine. It was a worship team from our church. And we had 10 people, including my wife and I. And one of the biggest things in the lead up to this, I said, look, we get there. This is kind of what we have planned, but that doesn't mean anything. Because that could all change. And it did. You know, and it, after we were there for a couple of days, one of the members was like, I see what you mean. You know, we're so here in the U.S., we're so, you know, meeting starts at seven o'clock and everything's right on time and everything, you know, there it's like, you don't necessarily have those stringent, uh, you know, parameters to go by and it does stretch you. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to add to that. Um, so patience, I would say in the sense that like in Ukraine, I always say there is an art in Ukraine called waiting in a line. And sometimes you don't even know what you're waiting in a line for, but you're waiting and, and there's the sense of like, that's what you do and you stand and you wait. And I think with Americans, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, why, why is this taking so long? And, you know, I would get jumping out and say, I, I don't have time for this, but just this sense of, I think, you know, whether it was waiting in line for bread in the early nineties, mm -hmm. um, but there is just a sense of like, of a slower uh, pace and and being okay with waiting for things a little bit longer than maybe I had grown up with. So that was another thing I think. Can't say I've perfected that one, but <laughs> I think maybe uh, maybe COVID has helped all of us uh, be a little more patient, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or if we haven't learned it yet, we better, better stop learning. Right. So, yeah. so so what motivates you to do what you do? Well, I think, you know, I'm working with um, another or another organization now and also which involves a lot of storytelling and, and looking at what God is doing around the world to see children in families. And I think that um, that has been my goal all along is recognizing that that's not always a perfect solution, you know, and I think that that's the journey that God has taken me on is that when I first moved to Ukraine, I thought, get kids out of orphanages into families and orphanhood. And we can look at the situation globally and we just think, oh, this many, you know, I've heard even pastors and teachers say like, if this many adoptive families rose up, we could like end orphanhood. But the more that I learned and the more that I walked um, and learned the needs in, in Ukraine and, and surrounding countries, it, it was recognizing that it was a lot more complex than that. Um, first of all, not all kids could be adopted. And even those that could had such a history of trauma and other nuances in their life that was going to make them adjusting into a family that much harder. And so I would say over the years, God stripped away my romanticized version of what putting children in families looks like. So I would say that, um, I still believe children need to be in families and that is ultimately the best place for them to heal, but how that looks, the type of family, um, and how, how we can even wrap around families that are taking kids and whether that's, you know, kids going to relatives, but just recognizing that after so many years of working alongside institutions is just saying that is not where children were meant to come into their destiny of, of, of having family because that family is supposed to be with us for life, not just until we're 18. So, um, so I'm passionate about helping nations 
have that narrative for their own country so that it doesn't need to be about, oh, well, the Americans or the Europeans, they come and adapt. But what does it look like in, in every nation of the world for people to take ownership of their vulnerable children and ensure that there are caring and loving adults walking with them through life? So how long did it take you to realize that this is why I'm here. This is my calling. This is my passion. Did that something, was that something that evolved over the years that you were there? Yeah, I would definitely say it evolved. Um, and I, and I would say it is always evolving. Um, I think, uh, as a single woman who hasn't yet had, you know, my own children, I, it was my way, but also feeling like I've always had the gift and heart of mothering, it was my way of saying like, what role can I play? So it's like, God has not allowed me to be a mother yet, but yet I can still have that heart of a mother and what would a mother do? It would want to see a child in a family. And so part of that evolution, um, while I was in Ukraine was about halfway. So about seven, eight years in, I opened, I got a larger apartment. I rented a larger apartment in the city and began to open it to adoptive uh, families who were coming through. So primarily American families that were traveling over. And for me, that was my way to use my gifts of hospitality. And then also my knowledge of the Ukrainian adoption system and just help families. And I think that when I was in that ministry for about eight years of opening my home and having this revolving door of families coming in and, and staying, and I think I really just felt that that was what I was supposed to do is it was my role that I could still advocate. And so I think that, um, and using the giftings that I had. And so I think I will always be a person that advocates for children and families, but how that looks might look different throughout mm -hmm. my whole life. Sure. Sure. Which kind of leads us to what you've just recently released. You, you released a, a new book about some of your, the stories of people that you've met. So tell us about that. I think that it started with some of the families that you've hosted and you featured some of those families in your book. Tell us about the book, why you wrote it and how, what the process was in, in doing that. Yeah. So, um, so as I said, I opened my home um, in Kiev for about seven, eight years and, and received all these families. And, and at the same time, I was on this journey that I was just describing of like being this advocate of we can end orphanhood, get all kids and families. And then as I was seeing those families go home and the challenges that they were having, I was also seeing like, oh, this isn't always this beautiful thing. You know, we can write. I was a, a big writer and blogger at the time, and I'd always write these Cinderella-like stories of this child got a family and, you know, and then the story ends, right? When in reality, the story is just beginning. <laughs> it's beginning, right. <laughs> so um, as I was watching this and, and hearing, it's like you're getting all these naive families on my, you know, doorstep and on my couch, uh, just, you know, with stars in their eyes, they're ready to save the world and, and save a child. So I'm seeing these families, and yet then I'm also being very aware of families at home who some of them I'm hearing from, others not, but ones that I knew more uh, more closely, I was hearing like of the big challenges and of, of you know, parents ending up in counseling because of how hard it was and marriages being on the rocks and just all of this stuff. And then I'm, and then I'm sitting with the rose colored glasses people <laughs> in my living room. So it's just like, oh, like 
how do I be a truth teller in this? Because, you know, people that would sit on my couch would be like, well, how does it go? You know, how, how have all these other families done? And you're like, oh, how much, how much do I say right now? Do they, you know, and I always say like, you don't want to be the naysayer. You don't want to be the one like, oh, it's going to be really hard. I mean, you want people to be prepared, but you also want them to walk out, you know, their own story. So, um, I, I had had a mom stay with me years before and she had joked saying I should write a book one day and that I've, I've experienced so much with these families and even my own work with kids and I probably have a story to tell. So kind of logged that in the back of my brain and thought, yeah, maybe, maybe someday I'd have something to say. So I, I placed a really big map of the U.S. in my entryway and as these families would stay with me, I would just pin them on the board and kind of almost half jokingly said, one day I'm gonna take a road trip across America and visit all these families again. So my crazy idea kind of turned into, it's like, oh, well, I wanted to write a book. I love to travel. I love to talk to people. Like how can I marry all of these passions into one? And so that's where the, the idea of adoption through the rear view mirror, which was this idea of a road trip meets interviewing adoptive families. So in the fall of 2017, I set out on a journey that was about four months and I tried, I left my, so I flew back from Ukraine to Washington state. And then from Washington, I drove all the way across up to Maine, down to Georgia, over Texas, California, and back up. I basically made like a big square of America. <laughs> um, and in that process, um, I interviewed 63 adoptive families and the majority of which had stayed in my home. Others were some people that I'd also come in contact with, but it was a chance to just sit down to hear their story and to give them a chance to share all parts. So the highs, the lows, and to kind of see what themes would come out as they all shared their stories. So I, I sat with families, I interviewed them, recorded those interviews, and then spent the next year and a half going through hundreds of hours of audio <laughs> recording and my own notes and really siphoning out those themes that were most prevalent in all those stories and um, writing writing the book, um, which I've, I've got it here if you do ever make this a video, but <laughs> um, so adoption through the rear view mirror, learning from stories of heartache and hope. And so I released that uh, just this last May and it, um, it focuses that you hear highlights of some of those stories and also just the overriding themes that come up with it with adoption. So that's a little bit of wow. the backstory on that. Yeah. Well, congratulations on uh, writing a book. That's a, that's a big, it's a big deal. Thank you. What surprised you most about that journey? I think what surprised me most was that people, people were hungry for a place to share their story um, where they could share all the parts with a person that understood. And I think that, um, some of the things around attachment where families have perhaps struggled to attach to their children, but that's a really hard thing to talk about. So I found that as I normalized challenging aspects of their adoption, because some of these people, like they had little adoption circles, but as I was able to say like, oh, well, what you're experiencing isn't as, you know, uncommon, they were just so hungry to know that they, they weren't alone. So I, I honestly can't say that I had too many surprises in the sense that I felt like I, I knew a lot of the challenges that families were facing. And I think 
it almost confirmed what I knew in, in mm. some ways, but it was like putting words to it. So now I no longer just had a theory of, mm. well, this part is hard or this part they wish they'd done differently. I was actually able to hear those stories and say, yes, you know, when you already have biological children in the home and you bring in adopted children, like the nuances of how do you blend those two families? And so it was like, I had some theories of how that was going and then I got to hear it impractical. But, you know, there was also very different stories. You know, I had some families that that gelled and blended quite well and just had a spirit of like, we're a family, a team, like the biological kids just embraced their new siblings. Um, there were those stories. And then there was the others that like, it was like World War II broke out when their kids came <laughs> home and and they're still picking up the pieces. So, I mean, there were, there were the, the very divergent stories, but then there were all the other ones that just had, I always say the mix of broken and beautiful, you know, it was like they were working to find healing. Um, and the majority of families, you know, said that um, they would do it again. You know, they would, even though it was hard and they'd been stretched and their faith had been refined, but, you know, they would do it again. So hmm. Wow. Well, I can't wait to, I can't wait to get a hold of the book and, and read it myself. So I'm looking forward to doing that. Uh, and, and it's available on Amazon, correct? Yes. Amazon, you can get your copy today. I'll put a, I'll put a link in the show notes below so people can click right on it and go order a copy. What are some of the, out of all your experiences and living overseas and doing this road trip, what are some of the big life lessons that kind of stick with you? Well, one, one thing in this, I feel like the, the theme, you know, so the theme of my book was this idea of, of rear view, right. Of like looking, looking back. And, um, it's, I think it's Soren Kierkegaard that said life can only be understood backwards, but it has to be lived forwards. Hmm. And I think that that theme is like what I'm continually learning. And I think it's, you know, it's true in adoption and it's, it's true in other areas of life is like you, you're taking in all of these experiences and some, you don't, it doesn't always make sense until you look back and, and see how that's changed you and how, what you, what you've learned from it. And, um, so sometimes, you know, with my travels around the world, you know, as you sit with people and, and you hear their story, I think that is so much of it is it's, it's, whenever you hear someone's story, it's essentially that, right? It's them looking back to say mm -hmm. what they have and yet keep walking, keep walking forward. Mm -hmm. So will you ever go back to Ukraine like to live or was, is that kind of something that's in your past now and you're moving to the next challenge and or the next opportunity? Well, I never say never to anything because <laughs> <laughs> you, I never would have thought, I mean, if you had told me when um, I moved there fresh out of college that I would have stayed for 14 years, I joke that I would have run away <laughs> <laughs> on day one because I, it was funny. I remember going to a women's conference shortly after arriving and they were having people stand up based on how long they'd lived in the country. You know, this was for expat women and, you know, it was like the group that had lived there for five and 10 years. At that point, I think the most anyone had lived there was, you know, about 13, 14 years. And I just remember seeing these women, even like they'd stand up for five years and be like, wow, they're crazy. Like, how could they ever live here for that long? I mean, I, I so remember that. And so now it's like, 
oh, wow, I never would have thought 14 years. So You, got, you get the 14-year badge. <laughs> yeah, the 14-year badge. But um, no, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and, and that part of the world will forever, I, I still call it my second first home, second home, it's home still in many ways. I still have many dear, dear friends and even a couple young women that I uh, got to mentor and disciple in the orphanage that are are there and, and living their life now that I, I keep in touch with. So um, I have no plans at this point to move back to live, but um, I know I will, I will make many trips. Um, actually, I'd hoped to go this fall. I don't know if COVID is Sound, seems like it might have derailed that plan, but uh, yeah, I hope to get back at least every yeah. year. So out of all the places that you've been, that you've lived and visited and, and where are the, are the areas that are perhaps impacted the most in, with, with vulnerable children? Well, right now, at, um, probably one of the most nuances I would say is in places in the, in the Middle East. And um, that. Um, well, that's actually even difficult to say. I mean, I can, my mind starts going to places in Africa and India where we're at. So the organization I'm working with world without orphans has ambassadors and nations around the world. And so I'm constantly hearing about needs. And so sometimes I'm like, Oh goodness, how do you pick one? But, um, I, within the middle East and the refugee situation, I know that that has, um, that's just a huge, huge need right now. And, and also a difficult one to task. Um, in most places in the Middle East, adoption is not a part of the culture, and, and that is a part, you know, because of Islam doesn't permit adoption the way we do in the West. And so that adds some nuances of, of children, but then you add the refugee situation. I'm connected to a woman who does work in Kurdistan with the Yazidi children who've been rescued out of, out of ISIS. And so um, their needs come to mind in, in rehabilitating them. Um, so in, in many ways, I'd say it's hard to pick, you know, just one, one nation, um, because I think we, I think what also comes to mind is India and India has so many children, but a lot of the issue there is it is children with families, you know, and, and they become orphans because of poverty and they're, they're sent to an institution because the institution can feed them and clothe them. And so it's really about how do we reinvent care because in many ways it's it's uh it's more expensive to run an orphanage than to support a family but it's also more attractive to raise funds to uh have an orphanage than to say let's help this one family and so that's an exciting development i think that is is gaining more momentum worldwide is how do we come alongside organizations that are working with vulnerable populations um, to prevent family separation and how could we maybe get kids that were separated from family because of poverty back into their region. So I would encourage anyone listening just to, as, as you think about how you can support vulnerable children, to look at organizations that are seeing ways that they can keep children in families or get children back because it is, it's so much less expensive to support a family in crisis than it is to house kids in a, in an institutional setting and, and the amount of abuse um, that can happen in an institutional setting is so much greater. Um, so that that's my heart is to see where we can come alongside uh, groups that are, are doing that have an emphasis there on, on keeping kids in families. On top of that, the psychological effects of just living in an institution environment and coming out of that is very, very challenging. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so, well, you've, you've had some amazing life experiences. And so I always ask this question, you know, I make movies and, and documentaries and I always write a log line when there's a movie made. And so a log line is that phrase or sentence that describes the movie. So when the movie about your life is made, what would the log line be? Well, the log line, the subtitle of my book <laughs> is learning from stories of heartache and hope. And it's funny because I wrestled with the law. I, I wrestled with the subtitle. Subtitles are always hard for me because it's like you want to give the message. Right. And so, mm-hmm. but as I, I, this is like, this was the original one and then it changed like four times. And then I went back to the original because in many ways I do feel like that's what my life is. And I, when I look at my own journey, um, my own personal journey is a mixture of heartache and hope. And, you know, I've been in many places in many countries where, you know, there's been devastation in Ukraine where there's been conflict. Um, in, I was in Lebanon a few years ago where they were, you know, dealing with the, the Syrian refugees there. And there is so much heartache. And so, but in the midst, you can focus on the heartache or you can also look at, at the hope that there is and that there are people striving to bring hope. And, you know, so much of my hope comes from my faith um, and the knowledge that this world is just a short blip, you know, in the grand scheme of eternity. And so I'd like to think that the log line of my life would be that I am learning from, from stories of heartache and hope in my own life and from the people that, that intersect with mine. Cause I think we all can learn from each other's heartaches and hopes. Hmm. Very cool. So what's the next big thing for you? To end (laughs) (laughs) COVID-19. And then you'll have enough money to do everything you want to do with helping vulnerable kids. I I will solve the world's problem. Um, You know, I, I, this is an, it's a unique time. It's probably the first time in, well, for many people, I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate, but um I, I read a funny meme the other day that said, I'm, I keep debating whether I'm going to get my, or I'm trying to get my life together, but I keep waiting to see if the world is going to end first. <laughs> I was like, yeah, there's probably some truth in that statement, but um, yeah. So I, I'm working part-time as the communications director for a group called World Without Orphans. And um, we're working with different leaders around the world and and especially in light of COVID-19 to see how we can bring more resources to help um, prevent family separation and to keep kids and families safe during this really difficult time. And every country is facing this in very nuanced ways. And um, we don't always hear about other countries because we're so focused on what's happening here in the U.S., but um, it is still affecting people globally. And so um, that is, uh, so my work with World Without Orphans continues. And then praying that eventually this, uh, the world will open back up so I can travel and, and share about the book and, and see what, what stories God opens up in the future. Awesome. The book is called Adoption Through the Rearview Mirror. And Karen Springs is the author, and she's been here on the My Story podcast today. Karen, thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you've done and are doing and making an impact on the world. And that's something all of us need to strive to do. Thanks, Conrad. It was a joy to be with you today. Karen, thanks so much for sharing your story today on the podcast. If you're interested in buying Karen's book, I've included links in the show notes below. Next time on the My Story podcast, we'll hear from Maddie Fiorenza. Maddie is an active firefighter and paramedic for the city of Anaheim in Orange County, California. 
He's a member of his fire department's peer support team with responsibility in the areas of critical incident stress debriefings, emotional support, awareness and guidance, and mental health resources. Maddie will share his story of the challenges and struggles he faced in dealing with post-traumatic stress as a firefighter. He'll share the stories of the stress of his job and the challenges that he faced and how he overcame these challenges and now helps others to do the same. Be sure to tune in next time for Maddie's compelling story. Hey, I'd really love it if you'd write a review for the podcast. I want to know if you're enjoying the shows or not. Leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or on the podcast page on Podbean. And thanks for listening and for sharing. The music on today's show is from my friend, Drew Davidson. You can get all of his music on iTunes or Spotify or at drewdavidson.com. And if you like what you heard today, there's more coming next week. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so these episodes show right up on your device. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next time on the My Story Podcast. Thank you.